0: from Outside Magazine and PRX. This is the science of survival. (laughs) We're getting to that point in the summer when, if you're paying attention, every story on the news about wildfires starts to sound the same. I'm not gonna do one of those news clip montages here because I know you already know what I'm talking about. And there's another news clip montage coming up real soon. Anyway, the news likes superlatives, and 2018 has had superlatives. Biggest, driest, burniest, the Ranch Fire is currently the largest fire in California history. The Mendocino Fire is the second largest. We had fires this year in the Arctic Circle, fires in Russia. In British Columbia, 2018 is in second place, all time, for most acres burned. And we all kind of know this stuff. Fires are bad, getting worse, and it has something to do with climate change and beetles, and drought. And that's kind of where the conversation stops. So, over the next two episodes, we decided to try and fill in a lot of the missing details in that conversation. This week, we're going to zoom way in on what happens inside a fire, what it is and what it does, and how within each fire is a recipe for ending wildfires. Then, we're going to zoom way out and ask what are the chances that we actually put that fire-ending plan into place? Will we ever do it? Could we do it if we wanted to? Or will we all just eventually burn up? In other words, this week we're identifying a solution to the wildfire problem, and next time we're looking at how likely it is that it'll actually work. But in order to tell the zoomed-in part of the story, we're going to hand it off to our friends at the podcast Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. They do an occasional series called 10 by 10, where they find very interesting stories in very small spaces, usually dirt and plants and stuff. Anyway, Outside In is hosted by Sam Evans-Brown, and if you like this show, you're going to like what they do, too. When we heard the story, we thought, this is exactly what we're trying to do with our Wildfire series, fill in gaps in the conversation. So we're just going to play it for you. Here's Sam.
1: Another year, another record-breaking wildfire season. The so-called car Fire has burned nearly 150 square miles. The fire has killed six
2: people, including three members of one family.
3: 17 large fires burning in all. The
2: car Fire has destroyed over 700 homes and so far forced nearly 40,000 to evacuate.
1: Thanks to climate change, the fire season now starts sooner, ends later, and is more intense. Scientists also say that climate change will make lightning more frequent and winds more powerful. Basically, the world is a tinderbox.
2: Six other major fires are burning across the state, all fueled by high winds, dry conditions, and triple-digit temperatures. So we're in the spot where the vortex actually came through. You can see it it ripped apart fences over here.
4: It's like a war zone. It's just like, like a bomb just hit.
1: But what if I told you that maybe the problem with all these big, out-of-control fires was not enough fire? Okay, scene change. I'm standing in a little patch of forest with bumpy, narrow dirt paths for ATVs running through it in northern New Hampshire, surrounded by firefighter types. Well, I should say, I'm standing between two completely different forests. Because on one side of this dirt path, the forest is thick. Dense, like so many trees and shrubs and leg grabby, ankle twisty plants that it would not be much fun to walk through. But on the other side of the path. Can you describe it? So this is just a pitch pine dominated ecosystem here. Can you describe it like in oh. words that a general person would understand? <laughs> <laughs> this is Luke Romance. Great name, I know. And as of last fall he was a seasonal worker with the Nature Conservancy.
2: This is almost a savannah almost. It's still definitely a forest, but like I say, it's very open. It's nice pine trees, uh pitch pine. You see you got white pine right next to you. That white pine got a lot more branches kind of world. Pitch pine are a little more scraggly actually, they don't look as nice nor get as big. But uh, they're fire adapted. They got thick bark, big plated bark there, and uh, so they can really take some flame
1: and and
3: not get to them.
1: When you walk through the woods on this side of the ATV track, there are tall pines, spaced pretty far apart. A few low, scrubby trees that you have to walk around. There are a lot of blueberry bushes, so many that you can't avoid stepping on them. But it's a lovely place for a stroll. It's open, it's bright, it's definitely not scratching up my arms or making it impossible for me to get anywhere. Something has come through, and like magic swept away all the pucker brush. This is called a pine barren. So what happened on the sunny side of the ATV trail? Someone lit it on fire.
2: Could we all group up? We'll start the briefing here. I appreciate the help getting things lined out this morning. Um, For folks that don't know me, my name is John Bailey. And I work with the Nature Conservancy. I'll be acting as the burn boss today.
1: Going like map. I mentioned, this is a team of a couple dozen people suited up in firefighting gear and equipped with water pumps and hoses and are going through a plan to spread out throughout the woods and position themselves to keep a wildfire under control.
2: Did I forget anybody? Any
1: questions? And they will be fighting a fire, but it's one that they're going to intentionally set and help to spread using diesel fuel. Drip torch. Um, this is another Nature Conservancy guy, Mike Crawford.
2: So, what you have here is um, it's a four to one ratio uh, four diesel and a one unleaded straight gas. So, put a little bit of fuel on the ground, light the fuel, and then you light uh, the torch from,
1: from that um, area that's lit on the ground. Running around in the woods with a canister of diesel, lighting fires as you go. If this sounds like a recipe for some out of control wildfires, let me just dispel that notion right now.
2: Heads up, everybody! Test fire on the ground.
1: These prescribed burns are so safe. I'm a
3: trained professional. They wait until the weather is right. At a dry bulb temperature of 55 wet bulb of 46. They pay
1: scrupulous attention to the wind.
2: Um, we've got a southwest wind. It should be light and variable.
1: They've got several sources of water. They've got the hoses. They've got the pumps. They've got two teams stationed in fire breaks where there are no sticks or plants to burn, ready to make sure the fire can't get past them. Uh,
2: continue self coordinating
1: despite the fact that there are people setting the woods on fire and we're actually standing in the path of the flames, it's actually kind of boring.
3: It's moving slowly towards us. Yeah. Do you think a turtle could outrun this? (laughs) Right now, yeah, maybe.
1: (laughs) It's so safe.
3: So Burn Boss,
1: give it a letter grade. How are we doing so far?
2: a letter grade i think we're getting a b for burn
1: (laughs) so why are they doing this well it's a fire with a job to do
3: yeah so it's uh i mean the the big picture here is that we're trying to maintain this incredibly unique habitat so uh these pitch pine scrub oak woodlands are new hampshire's rarest forest type.
1: That last guy is Jeff Lugie. He's in charge of this whole conflagration. Remember the two very different forests from the two sides of the path from the start of this story? One has been left alone for decades and been allowed to grow up dense and thick. And the other had been burned a few years before in what's called a prescribed burn. Now there are a few reasons why a woods doctor might prescribe a fire for a particular patch of woods. But let's start with the one at hand. What's going on in this particular New England forest? Here, it's conservationists who are doing these fires in the fall, trying to preserve rare plants and birds and bugs. For instance, whippoorwill live here. That's the bird that sings all night long.
3: You know, they're great to hear, but if you live next to one, you probably want to, like, throw a shoe at it.
1: And the birds aren't the only ones who like the open space. It also attracts a lot of rare moths.
3: The list right now is there's 22 um, state-listed species here. So, the rare birds are eating the rare insects. We can live with that.
1: <laughs> these whippoorwills and rare bugs, they need pine barrens to survive. And in turn, the forests, the pine barrens, need fire to exist. They're on very
3: dry soil. Um, so, they'd dry out fast. Um, and you would get lightning strikes, not often, um, you know, especially in these northern pine barrens, maybe like every 15 or 20 years, uh, that would light a fire. And a lot of it would burn.
1: And if headlines about wildfires have made you believe that fires and trees don't mix, that in the rock-paper-scissors game, fire always beats tree, that is not the case. The plants in this forest are accustomed to regular fires. They're adapted to not only survive one of the most destructive forces on the planet, but to thrive on it. The dominant tree here is called the pitch pine. It has really thick Plated bark that protects it from flames, and its branches are really high off the ground so that a fire would have to be huge to torch it. Its cones are covered with a thick layer of sticky resin that holds them shut so they can't sprout and form a new tree. That is, until fire comes along to melt the resin and let them pop open up. That way, after a fire has passed and decimated all the competition, pitch pines are the first to bounce back and recolonize a phoenix rising from the ashes. And even if you do manage to torch the trees, they invest heavily in their roots, storing lots of nutrients there. So after a fire burns it down to a stump, they resprout like the head of a hydro when it's chopped off by a Greek hero. And that's not just true of the pitch pine, but virtually all of the trees here, like another called the scrub oak.
3: Um, there is apparently a guy on Cape Cod that has been doing this little like backyard experiment. He's a scrub oak. He's been continuously cutting every year for 30 years, and it sprouts every year. Yeah, pretty so, tough to kill them that way. It's pretty tough to kill a scrub oak in general. I mean, you'd have to come out out here with a bulldozer and plow them out of the ground.
1: <laughs> plants in these ecosystems are so deeply co-evolved with fire that they actually encourage fires. Blueberries, eucalyptus, manzanita, sweet ferns—all of these plants have developed waxy, oily leaves, so they're extra flammable. They uh, you know, they almost explode in the flame. Some people call them self-immolators. This is Paul Gagnon, a fire ecologist who's doing a stint at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. He says this debate over why plants would evolve to be more flammable has been smoldering since 1970. It's kind of
2: a paradox. Why would a plant self-immolate? One idea is that if a plant can burn very hot and intensely, it might burn up its neighbors as
0: well as itself.
1: If you're a plant that can grow back after a fire by sprouting from your roots or by being the first to grow back because of your fire-activated seeds, this is good news for you, or at least for your genes.
2: Even though the individual would be, would be harmed or killed in the fire, its offspring would benefit from it having burned up its neighbors. And, and this is a, a
1: hypothesis called kill-thy-neighbor plant as arsonist. This is a really attractive idea, but a lot of biologists point out that flammability could just as easily be a coincidence. As in fire adapted plants have evolved to survive droughts and being eaten by herbivores and grow in poor soils, and all these adaptations also just happen to make them more flammable. But if this is for real, it's an example of plants doing something a lot of us think is just the domain of vertebrates. They're reshaping the forest engineering their environment to be more welcoming for species like them. Species that thrive after a fire. And these plants? They used to run this joint. We know from a bunch of different sources that before the Europeans arrived, there was a lot more fire on the land than there is today. There's this whole spectrum of how well plants tolerate fire, and generally speaking, everywhere east of the Mississippi seems to be sliding away from the fire-tolerant end of the spectrum. And that means that forests like the Pine Barren, where we started this story, used to be much more common. So where were all these fires coming from? In most of the eastern United States and and in parts of the western United States as well,
2: there are something like uh, anywhere from four to 16 cloud-to-ground lightning strikes per square kilometer per year. And each one of those is, uh, I'm told, hotter than the surface of the sun.
1: This is one version of the story, but there's something else in the data, too. Wherever there was fire, there were people. Archaeologists have noted that wherever there were native settlements, there also tended to be fire-adapted species. So were humans creating these ecosystems?
2: Okay, yes. Uh, My name is uh, Tony Harwood, Uh, I'm from uh, western Montana. My career was as a land and fire manager with the Confederated Salish and Kootenai
1: Tribes. Tony helped lead a unique project, one that combined western science with oral history. He says there's a word in the Salish and Kootenai languages.
2: The word meant keeper of fire, and that's before Flint and those type of things, where they would carry the fire with them in a the, uh, buffalo horn or a uh, clamshell.
1: People used fire for lots of reasons. For instance, if you wanted a home where the buffalo roam...
2: Tribal elders were interviewed back then, and they would talk about if they had... Uh, uh, a good fall buffalo hunt. After the, uh, the hunt was completed, the natives would uh, set fire to the hunting ground that they were le- as they were leaving. And they were essentially uh, leaving fire as a gift, spiritually, uh, to the animal.
1: This gift of fire turned into freshly renovated grasslands that burst back greener and tastier the next year. Studies show that buffalo prefer grass in areas that burned the year before. And that's not all.
2: To uh, keep an abundance of food and, and medicinal plants.
1: Huckleberries and serviceberries and chokecherries, staples in some indigenous diets, all thrive after fires.
2: And when they were camping, they would uh, apply fire to reduce uh, pests and rattlesnakes and bugs and beetles.
1: All of this burning kept forests open and grassy between the trees. Tony says that the scientists told them that lightning was causing fires to sweep through every 10 to 15 years. But native people...
2: When you had Indian, Native American influences on that uh, the fire's return interval or frequency was, was more like four or
1: five years. When we think farming, we think tilling soil, planting crops. But this was a different kind of agriculture. In a way, they were cultivating a whole landscape. And there was a side effect, too. When you burn every four or five years, there's not much left in the woods to burn each time around. The fires stay small, like the one from the beginning of the episode that a turtle could outrun. They're safe, they're boring, not like the ones that have been ravaging the West in recent years.
2: It was based on a keen observation on burning and the results of burning. Uh, an interim process over 15,000 generations that provided uh, a basis for uh, traditional ecological knowledge that was passed down through uh, oral tradition. What changes? Um, A lot of the burning is stopped. Uh, The Native peoples are are removed uh, by diseases, by war, by forcible relocation. Well... Who's that? Well, I'm Steve Pine. I'm a professor at uh, Arizona State University and uh, self-proclaimed pyromantic. Not a pyromaniac, important distinction.
1: Once European colonization got underway, there was a lot of logging going on. And we were just leaving the debris, branches and wood chips left lying around in the forest. Logging takes the big stuff and leaves the little.
2: Fire burns the little stuff and leaves the big.
1: All of that little stuff got left in the forest. Drying out, turning into fuel. Several big fires led to a policy of extreme fire suppression. And as a result, today's forests look nothing like the forests that used to exist here. Which brings us back to our forest from the beginning, our 10 by 10. Just to our left, you can see probably 25, 30 feet into the underbrush. And to our right, it's very open. There's... A lot of
4: ferns. You're right. The ferns, the sweet fern, the bracken fern, the blueberry. This is
1: Adele Fenwick, another fire ecologist up here in New Hampshire. And we're strolling through the stand of trees that the Nature Conservancy set on fire at the beginning of the story, except eight months later. And it's very different. So, But but as soon as we got here, you said, this is lovely.
4: It's so open.
1: All the green has bounced back. And the shrubs are all budding out. The fire has opened everything up. The undergrowth is low and easy to walk through.
4: So you have more taller trees, a bit more close canopy, but then you have wide open. So it's going to recruit different herbaceous species for the pollinators. It's going to recruit different uh, bird types. It'll just support similar, but somewhat different species
1: to give you a sense of adele's vibe let me just give you a little anecdote twice during our interview she picked a tick off her skin and nonchalantly without stopping her sentence impaled it on her pocket knife which she says is like no big deal
4: i work in the woods for a living it's a routine occurrence
1: (laughs) she researches high altitude red pine stands and how often they used to burn here in new england but i was stuck on this question why are these ecosystems here are they here because lightning strikes set fires or because humans did? And does that matter? There are these, there are these accounts of, of the colonial Europeans arriving and they're like, the forests are like parks and you yeah. can ride a horse at a full gallop through the <laughs> woods. But like that, that has been cited as, as evidence that, that there was this, this like really um, robust regime of native burning. Um, And and when you talk to the fire researchers, they're they're a little less willing to sort of say, like, yes, the Native Americans had you know were burning constantly, and they were and they're they're just more measured in what they're willing to say. You know,
4: peer-reviewed studies on the line (laughs) is what you're up there. No one wants to hang themselves out to dry. Right. Yes, that's the nature of being a research scientist. Is you stand behind research evidence. We do know that there were um, Abenaki tribes here, the Ossipee, and we do know that they did burn for myriad reasons. So I can't say a certain percentage, but it was a lot of area. So however frequently Native Americans did burn uh, is interesting, and it's helpful to know, but... You know, I'm okay with that if we don't have hard answers, if my goal is to restore and maintain biodiversity and keep species from going extinct.
1: We've used fire to dramatically reshape our environment for as long as we've known how to make it. And in that way, the last hundred years or so of aggressively putting out every fire that starts has been this odd departure from that history. And now we're paying the price for that strategy in the form of deadly wildfires out west and disappearing pine barrens here in the northeast. The woods doctors, though, have a prescription in mind, and all it takes is a couple dozen firefighters and a drip torch, if we can get over our fear of the flames.
0: That's Sam Evans-Brown. He's the host of the podcast Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio. This piece was produced by Sam and Taylor Quimby, with help from Hannah McCarthy, Justine Paradise, Nick Kepediche, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Music in this episode by Franco Luzzi, Blue Dot Sessions, Jason Leonard, and Ikimashu Aoi. This episode of the Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance and prescribed burns. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX. We'll be back in two weeks with an in-depth look at how likely we are to start doing a lot more prescribed burning and possibly put an end to the wildfire problem in our lifetime. It's a lot more complicated than you might think, but there's hope. That's next time.